1: what up everybody it's my today Austin is currently in Mexico partying it up so it's just me today but the past week's been interesting I'm looking for at a few different multifamily properties that I think could work we're just waiting on a couple last-minute details Uh, the bigger the properties a little bit more information you need as well I also just locked up a new flip today which should be interesting there's a low six-figure profit on that one so it's juicy enough that there's enough margin of error right which is kind of how I like to do everything and It is a small town flip, which brings with it kind of a higher level of risk as well, right? I'm on track, I think, this year with regards to my flipping goal that I had, but I'm gonna be making some changes in the coming weeks as well, so just make sure you guys are following the journey on Instagram. Myself and Austin will probably do an update episode from our year-end update. Uh, We kind of missed a ball in doing it at Q1 end, but maybe we'll just make it like a four-month end update or something, or it might just be at six months, who knows. But both of us definitely made quite a few changes and leaps in our journey. I do want to talk about something that I've been hearing quite a bit Um, whether it's on the coaching side or mortgages I've been hearing these kind of two different completely different trains of thought right where on one side I see these individuals that are aggressively sourcing some crazy crazy deals you know the benefit of having really good deals is just that you don't care what your cost of capital is right so so when you're going to a private lender all of a sudden because something you know pops up and there's some issues or whatever or it's a quick close situation you really don't care as long as you get to buy the house Right. Then there's individuals that are struggling to find a decent deal in today's market. Right. And that's either, you know, the most common one is that you keep getting outbid on the market or that the numbers just don't work anymore. Right. So I think it's important that we all look at how we're acquiring properties, because ultimately we all have the same resources available to us. Right, so just expand the resources that you're currently using to acquire real estate. Look at everything that's available to you. Right? So this includes not only the MLS, but who else could be a seller of real estate? Right? So it could be your neighbors, your friends, your family, plumbers, electricians, and last but not least, also wholesalers. Right? So with that being said, let me introduce you to this week's guest, Whalen. Waylon's our first repeat guest he was also our very first podcast guest and at the time that we recorded it I think it was almost nine months ago Waylon had an Airbnb cottage and shared with us the numbers from that super lucrative deal but he's done so much more in the last nine months that it made way more sense to bring him back onto the podcast to share with us everything that has changed since then. So since then Waylon's gone on to flip and wholesale real estate alongside with Austin forming Ontario Property Deals which is well on its way to do a million plus this year. So with that Check out the episode, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And as always, make sure you guys comment and subscribe to the podcast.
0: Hello, everyone. We are joined with Waylon McGill. This is our first guest back and also our first guest period when we first started this podcast. So welcome again, Waylon. How are you?
2: I'm good. That's awesome. Quite the accolades to come in with. <laughs> well, I, I think everyone, you know, kind of knows you from the first
1: episode and your very like origin story, but just super curious, like how have things changed? I think last time when we did that recording was probably July or August. But by the time it came out, it was October. But
2: still, so how have things changed in the last what is that, like eight months or so? Nine yeah, months? Yeah, wow. Uh things have changed a lot. So I think that we just touched on last time, maybe towards the end of the interview, where I'd kind of said like I'd been tapped out cash-wise at that point and so i needed to get into more active strategies for income in real estate and since then uh, started wholesaling so i got a few wholesale deals under my belt personally and then you know as many people know partnered up with Austin actually to create a couple uh, a couple brands and and a, and a proper wholesaling company so uh, it's kind of crazy to think that eight months ago I hadn't even that was just a, a twinkle in my eye at that point. I hadn't actually gone out there, marketed, or closed any deals. And then cottage update, it's been it's been a struggle. COVID has been really tough, right? Like these these lockdowns have basically put us in a position where for for some months we haven't been able to rent out the cottage. So We're really lucky. Obviously we did really well last year with it and we're able to bank some of that money because there's been some months with zero revenue and the interest has definitely been there. Lots of people have wanted to rent the cottage. There hasn't been any shortage of interest. It's just, we've had to cancel bookings on people. I think, you know, hopefully that clears up, but overall it's still been a great investment. It's just, we kind of benefited from COVID and everybody wanted to get away and paying high prices for a while. And now we're kind of getting the downside of it, of the government shutting things down and not allowing short-term rentals.
1: So are you still looking to grow out that portfolio or is that kind of, you're just happy with the one
2: cottage and you're going to leave that as is? I would like more, but my, my wife is the one who really manages the day to day. And so it's for her, it's, it's, it's an It's an active source of income, right? It, it's taxed like active income for a reason. It's a lot more work and you can definitely systemize to reduce the amount of work, but it's not just like picking up another duplex or something like that. So I think in the short term, probably not uh, and then I'll say like one lesson that we've learned, like one downside that we didn't touch on last time with the cottage, is really being mindful of the neighbor situation. Like we've got a neighbor who's been really difficult, a lot of false complaints, cl- complaints that have been uh, determined to be false by the city as well. And I think there's a couple things that that could be done to avoid that. One is scoping out like who are the neighbors when you're buying a place like understanding right if someone's using their cottage as a vacation property and they're there just for the weekends for half the year they're probably you know having a good time while they're there as well right versus if you've got if you're fairly close to your neighbors and they work a day job and they're there all year round your guests might be treating a thursday or a wednesday like it's a weekend because for them they're on vacation but you know for someone who's nearby and and owns a house for them it's just another day of the week so one thing I would prioritize going forward is distance from neighbors how much like sound barrier there is like is there a good amount of trees and coverage and and brush and stuff like that that's going to create a sound barrier Uh, but also I would I would look to prioritize places where the neighbors aren't full-time residents I think that that's you're just less likely to have issues that way.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important lesson in any Airbnb, really. It should be standard in all Airbnb due diligences. When you plan to Airbnb anything, whether that be a condo, a cottage, or a house, find out who your neighbors are. Because in any situation, it would be your neighbors who could complain and shut things down. So that's a really important takeaway. And uh, I know in the last podcast, you were talking about making some upgrades to your Airbnb, because you used a platform called AirDNA where you can see data as in like what the top, let's say 10% Airbnbs have in the area, like for example, like a hot tub or some unique amenities. Are you still planning to invest more money into your Airbnb with this kind of struggle? Or are you just like kind of operating as is and, and moving forward from there?
2: Yeah, we're definitely going to continue to invest in it. The return is there and obviously running a business, it's a deduction when you do put that money in. So at our at our place previous owners like two previous owners ago had did have a hot tub so there's already electrical there's like a you know a bunch of stone down to create that sort of area that the hot tub would go in so we will we will likely do that later uh, later this year basically after we've Done some revenue in the summer because obviously, like I said, for since January, there's been very little time that it's been available to rent out uh, based on the lockdowns in that particular area. So, as we get that revenue in, we'll continue to invest. I think we'd like to to do a new bigger dock. Uh, we're increasing our holding tank capacity to increase the number of, of users that we're able to have during a booking. we we'll be building a new fire pit this year. We've upgraded the outdoor dining, we purchased it late last year. I mean, it was supposed to be earlier, it was, it was delayed by months. So we'll have like a nice new outdoor dining set this year. And I think just over time, it makes sense to continue to invest because at the end of the day, it's like, you'll get a better return while you're renting it out. But you're also going to get a better return if you sell it, or if you refinance it.
0: So just out of curiosity, do you think you're going to get higher daily rates? Or is it just going to be booked out for a longer period of time? Or is it a mix of both?
2: Yeah, a little bit of both. Like, I think that realistically, I don't think our rates are going to be much higher than they were last year when like everybody was just dying for a vacation. But if we could keep our rates close to what they were last year on an ongoing basis. And then the other factor is, yeah, making sure that that off season is booked out more consistently, right? Because a lot of people's cottage is only booked out during the key months, right? And a lot of people definitely got bookings this year because of, uh, people just needing to get away, but you know that top ten percent that are book they're still booked out ninety percent of the time. Month like for January, February, March, etc. Like that's huge revenue opportunity that you're missing out on. And I think when you think about how much did you actually spend, like let's say now you spent eight or nine hundred thousand dollars on a cottage, uh, a hot tubs five thousand dollars, and could maybe double or triple your occupancy for four months out of the year. Right, it's a fairly small incremental cost for a lot of additional revenue. Yeah. So so you got the cottage.
1: So I'm really curious to to move into where you're where you're at now. So you got the cottage at that time and then you started wholesaling. Like, how did you get started in wholesaling? What what I guess drove you to that line of business? And like, yeah, what was your like starting experience like?
2: So I kind of I knew that I wanted to do it because I'd once paid a wholesale fee and I was just like, oh man, like I'm doing all the work on this deal, and this person is making in that particular case like they made almost as much money as i did for a much shorter process so i thought like i want to get into that the other thing is like my background you know i've got a career in selling and sales leadership and like i didn't come into real estate knowing a lot about houses i'm not a handy guy like you know i didn't have a great background in finance or something like that where i'm a great number cruncher so there wasn't really a skill in real estate investing that, that was natural for me or something that I really enjoyed doing. And then when I kind of learned more about it, it was like, oh, this is like the sales role of real estate investing. I thought, okay, like I actually have a competitive advantage here. So I think in general, like you should do what you're good at, right? If you, if you do what you're good at, you'll come to like it because everybody likes winning and everybody likes being good at stuff. So that's kind of why I decided to go in that direction. And how I started really was just with, you know, the way most people start is sending out flyers, it's interesting, like at that time, I think, you know, I probably get two to three times as many calls per flyer I sent. And that's not that long ago, right? It's like eight months ago. I probably get two to three times as many calls per flyer or per thousand flyers as I do now. But I was able to get three deals relatively quickly within like the first two to three months. And that really was the proof of concept where I was like, I'm good at this. I can do this and I can, I can build a business around this. So how many flyers
1: did it take you to get to generate the two to three deals
2: at that time? Like at that time? Yeah. So I think, I think my first round of flyers I sent out like 7,000 flyers and I actually got a deal out of it where now I would not project a deal. Like I would need to send 20,000 flyers now to project that you're likely to get a deal of some sort. Uh, But yeah, so probably, I probably sent a total of about 25,000 flyers to get those first three deals. That's, that's actually pretty decent numbers. I thought
1: even for back then, so the two to three deals that you got, I, I'm just curious, like what did those deals look like? And like, what, what were the pain points? Cause at this point you're new to the real estate industry. You're, you're kind of just like, you've got significant sales experience, which is obviously very relevant, but what was the pain points at
2: that time for me? Well, one was just like doing everything. Right. So like wholesaling itself, if you were just to like map out what the business is like the seven or eight steps to wholesale a deal, it's like, it's a fairly straightforward business. It's just, it gets a lot messier when you're actually doing it in real life. Right. So one is you send out all these flyers, you got to take all these phone calls. You got to like, where are you tracking that information? Right. We know that a lot of your sales from, you know, career and selling it's, it's in the follow up. So how are you going to keep track of all that information getting comps, right? Like having a realtor who who's willing to, to give you some time to pull some comps and like, actually give you an idea of of the value and where you need to be probably to make that deal work because as a relatively junior real estate investor like just in terms of time I was you know less than a year into investing at the time like it's just hard to comp properties I think it's always hard you know like I'm a lot further in now and it's still difficult sometimes to assess value so figuring that stuff out but then you've actually got to go to the house of everybody that you're going to try that you're like seriously going to try to buy their house you've actually got to go there i've got a career in a day job so like this means basically at like 5 30 jumping on the highway and fighting rush hour track traffic with everybody else to go to a house to have a shot at, at taking down a deal once you get that you've got to book a walkthrough potentially so you've got to market the deal right where's your buyers list coming from like at the beginning you don't have one so your deals have got to be really good it's it's an
1: what did you do at that point
2: for the buyer's list? Cause that's usually a pretty big struggle as well. To be honest. So I definitely like sent out things, asking people to get on my buyer's list. Originally, I kind of went through just like contacting people on Facebook and stuff like that. Like it was real, like, again, that's what I mean. It's like for one person to do it, it was, it was a really, it was a lot to do because I had to, okay, I'm going to get this stuff locked up, but I've got to have some number. And my buyer's list was not big. It was like, you know, four or 500 people, which is, you know, when we compare it to our buyers list now, and like what it takes to get a deal, it's like, I'm kind of surprised that I was able to move those deals. And I think it's a testament to the fact that they were really good deals, but booking walkthroughs, and like, it's not like I was working with somebody else. So it's kind of like, okay, like, how am I going to book this walkthrough? What am I going to tell these people? What's going on? Like, why am I coming to the house with like, six other people? So there's, there was just like a lot, i was just kind of like, stumbling my way through the process. And fortunately things were able to work out, but it's just a lot of different parts and a lot of different roles and responsibilities. And then like, you know, on the second deal I had, it was like 24 hours before closing, I got a call from the buyer saying that they couldn't close on the property. Like his lawyer basically said, the lender won't lend on it. And it was, I'd originally signed it in my personal name, assigned it to my corporation and then assigned it to them. And one thing I didn't know is that some lenders won't, won't fund a deal that's been double assigned because they just start, they just think this is weird. Like what, what's going on here? Why is this being assigned two times? So, you know, with like less than 24 hours to go, I had to figure out that process. Right. So it's just like a lot of things that you've got to do to, to, to actually wholesale a deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I kind of like to break things down into actionable steps for our listeners as well. First part of the, the process is, if you get some calls going in, you got to do some due diligence to get comps. So how did you go about finding that realtor being less than one year in never wholesaling before and really only having like, what was it like two, three properties under your belt? Like how did you get people to take you seriously and pull comps for you? So I was actually fortunate that a much more
2: experienced wholesaler saw me kind of like asking on a, a, a group online, like on Facebook about, someone who'd be interested in doing like, one thing I did do is I just like paid some realtors up front and like, I totally got ripped off. Like when I think about it, it's like the time I didn't realize that pulling comps took like three minutes <laughs> and still, it's still, it's still a favor you're asking. So it's like, it's not to say that you shouldn't be appreciative and like try to provide value for that realtor. But like I had someone charge me like 200 bucks to pull comps on a property. You know what I mean? And like, I didn't realize like I'm getting hosed here. So I was fortunate that, that a more senior wholesaler uh, who I'd purchased a deal from in the past uh, reached out and was like, Hey, I'd used this guy previously. And I reached out to them and, and they understood what it was about, understood that there was an opportunity for them to capture some value from the relationship as well. So I think buying that wholesale deal is really what put me in a position to get somebody for comps. And then I really tightly focused in the area where that realtor could help me to start off.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So it seems like just networking and leveraging off of what uh, who other people's uh, I guess power team is when it comes to realtors, right? And just bouncing off of them because a lot of a lot of investors they know investor oriented realtors and they understand the game, so so they're more than willing to help out.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. We talk to a lot of realtors who don't get it or or like who want to try to like capitalize every time they sell you comps with some sort of fee or something like that, and like that's not going to work for you. So I'd say if you're new to wholesaling, you need to find a realtor who understands that there will be value for them that, you know, you can recommend them to be used as the realtor for the flip itself. If you flip a property, but also maybe you'll wholetail a deal. You know, one of those first three deals I did was actually, uh, and this was actually a Google ad that I ran. So even though I sent 25,000 flyers, that was for two deals. And then it was a, a Google ad for the other, it was kind of a retail buyer or like a retail seller situation. And the realtor was a, because it was a really good deal, the realtor was able to work with another realtor at his office, and they both basically got a commission. Like him as the selling realtor, and her as the uh, as the purchasing one. So, you know, at the end of the day, you got to make sure that they get revenue from you somehow.
1: Yeah. So, one thing I I was thinking earlier when you were talking about you know leveraging the relevant skills that you brought to the real estate industry, which is your selling experience, right? Why did you decide to go down the wholesaling route rather than becoming a realtor? Because I think if you've got like great sales and negotiation skills as a realtor, your your earnings could also be pretty significant, right?
2: Yeah. I think it's like, I, I have one boss and I like my boss, but I don't want another one. Right. So I didn't want to work for somebody else. Like that's just, I'm getting on like in my career where I don't like the idea of having multiple bosses, just like at this point is not a tenable idea for me. So I was like, I want to be able to do something independently. I don't want to answer to anybody else. I also like, my career has to come first. Like I've got a good career. I've got a great job. It has to come first, which means that I can't, if my boss at the real estate brokerage says I need you to do something and it conflicts with my, with my core responsibilities at my job, like that's going to be a no right? So I just thought from like a work-life balance, like I can do as much of this as I want or as little of this as I want. I'm not going to pay fees on a monthly basis to a brokerage. I just feel like there's a lot more startup costs involved with becoming a realtor. And I might have gone down that path if they hadn't changed the rules and made it so you have to actually have to take courses. Like if all I had to do was like study, read a couple books and write a test, like I probably, I might've done that before I even knew what wholesaling was. But I think the flexibility there doing it as a side hustle and not having all these ongoing costs related to just maintaining a, a license as a realtor.
1: Yeah. So, that, so then, okay. So you became a real uh, wholesaler and you were doing as, as you said, like a side hustle, but since then you guys have evolved your wholesaling business, like 10 X, like I, I, I don't know how else to describe it, but what really, what like changed it, what made you change from like a, it as a side hustle to as a business? And what did you
2: guys do differently that took it and legitimized it? Right? Yeah. So I think like right from the start, I definitely wanted it to seem like a proper company. Like I didn't just want to seem like some dude, just, I think that trust is really important. And I think brands, the value of brand is often in creating trust, right? It's like people are so like how you interact, if it's attached to a brand starts to build a reputation. So I wanted to do that right from the start, but I think it was really, it was partnering with Austin where basically like I'd had some early success. And, uh, I, you know, I talked to Austin about it and I was just obviously what, you know, he's doing great things in in Windsor. So I was like, Hey, I I don't know that market. I've worked that market, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Like, why don't we partner up and and start wholesaling in Windsor? And from there, the conversation just kind of evolved into like, why don't we just partner up full on now? Like I'd already had proof of concept that I was going to do pretty well at this, but the way I looked at it was like, we could negotiate over like what percentage each person gets on a deal or something like that. But I thought the best way to get more is just like, let's just increase the size of the pie. And I thought that you can only accomplish so much as an individual at anything, right. All the best people at everything have, you know, coaches, you know, Tiger Woods, caddy would would tell him that the pin was further or shorter than it actually was because he knew on a given day how he was shooting. Right. It's like, so anything really great requires getting people together and rallying around a common goal And so I thought like we could do way more teamed up than I could do individually. And I thought more than double. And I also thought that if you want to become a proper business and for me, like a proper business is something that can operate when you're not working, right? Like if you're, if the business, if revenue stops, when you stop, then you're just working a job and like, it could be an amazing job and you love it, but that's not, what a business is, right? A business ideally should have some value. You should be able to sell it at some point and it can operate without you. And I thought, I don't have the time to build that myself. Like there's two sides to this, right? There's actually getting the revenue, doing the wholesaling. There's also building a lot of stuff on the back end that creates scalability. And I, can't, there's no way I could work my day job and do all those things. And so a partner was going to be necessary. And, and that's, I think, where things really started to take off.
1: So let me ask you about that. Cause I see, I, I do see a lot of new wholesalers teaming up, partnering with different individuals, kind of like pooling resources, however you want to look at it. Right. So I know both of you guys fairly well, so I, I kind of understand it already, but for everyone else, like what was both of your skill sets and like, what made that partnership work?
2: So I think it's good to have like fairly clear roles and responsibilities. Like if you're partnering up with someone and they just do more of what you do, right. You're just both good salespeople. It's like, Okay, great. But as you scale over time with just a couple of salespeople and nobody who's focusing on operations, you're probably going to find that you're not that efficient. You're wasting leads. There's stuff that's falling off because it's just like salespeople typically are not the most detail oriented, and they're they're more focused on like how do I get this revenue now. And so one thing I would say is like making sure that you have a partner who has a complementary skill set. There's a book called Rocket Fuel that I think really articulates this. While well. they talk about integrators and visionaries visionaries have big ideas they have these goals they have all these different strategies of how we're going to get leads and things like that right and then the problem is is that visionaries frequently are not very good at following through to completion of what it will will take to actually operationalize something and so i think that austin's background and skill set like i think austin is a visionary as well like you look at the portfolio and you look what he did and like it's it's super impressive but from like a, a skill set perspective, he's really good at operationalizing stuff. He's really good at that nitty-gritty that needs to get done, but maybe isn't exciting for a person like me. And for me, it's it's tougher to do things that I'm not excited about. So I would say like making sure you have complementary skill sets, someone's got to be the person who's focusing on like. The budgets, the, the operations, how, like when you've got a great idea, how do we actually implement the nitty gritty of that? So I think it's been a really good partnership in that respect where we're kind of handling separate things and both are, you know, we're both happy doing the things that we do.
0: Yeah, I think, I think Waylon pretty much nailed it, right? Like, and me and Waylon have this conversation all the time. I'm like, Waylon, how the fuck do you always have energy to take phone calls? Cause I, I take phone calls on the disposition side and it, it can quite, quite exhausting. Cause that's something that takes energy away from me. I told Waylon like I'm someone who likes to sit on a laptop, grind away phone calls here and there. That's fine. But I can't do a day of full phone calls. Whereas Waylon, his entire job and career has been based off of that, right? Face-to-face interaction, talking with people. So I think we just have like exactly what Waylon said like good complementary skill sets where he is the person that is handling the acquisitions, who's on the phones. And I prefer to be that person in kind of the backgrounds on Excel, on QuickBooks, whatever, putting systems together. But yeah, no, that's exactly what it is.
1: Cool. So once you guys made it, once you guys decide to formally partner up, start up the wholesaling business, I guess what changed since then? Like what have you guys done differently that you think most like maybe junior wholesalers or people that are just getting started off? What do you think they don't have that you guys are now implementing? And I guess even for those junior guys that are like, you know, you've done one, two, maybe three deals. What do you recommend they start to do now, like moving forward to get to your stage?
0: You want us to give our secrets, eh? Yeah. <laughs> no comment. I'm joking. To make sure that none of these
2: are too helpful. You know, uh, so I think like really making sure that you've got proper systems in place, like a, a, a CRM, for example, and like your CRM can be Microsoft Excel. Like, that's a possibility, but like having something to accurately track every person that you talk to, because there's deals like, you know, I, I hear stories like it's like a year later, somebody that you talk to, you, you know, a text message is sent or a call is made and all of a sudden, you know, something that was, it was a cold lead eight months ago is now a a big deal. Right. So, I think making sure that you're accurately tracking, because what you don't want is just to have all these leads coming in and you're kind of having one or two conversations with each. And then if nothing happens, there's no deal, right? Because your marketing cost is going to be pretty high. You're going to be very busy handling those first calls, but your conversion rate on that marketing spend is not going to be really high. So I think doing that, another thing I think is like get the finances sorted out quickly, like. I don't love focusing on that type of stuff, but it's like, you need to know how much you're spending. I think it's really important. Like right now we're in March or sorry, we're in April. And I think like, I don't see it getting better, but like you could easily spend 10 grand to get a deal in a, in a hot market. Right. Because one, there's so many people you're talking to people. They've got five or six letters in the past week. One, like, is there any reason why they should talk to you versus any of those other letters? Probably not really. You're probably marketing basically the same stuff that they are. So naturally as a percentage, you're just going to get like a small percentage of the overall deals, but you're going to be in competitive situations and you you know, the profit margins are going to be squeezed. So it's like your cost per deal is going to be pretty high right now. I think it's just like same with regular real estate, right? There's, you go to your, your favorite city and like, there's probably a lot fewer listings than there were six to 12 months ago. And I think it's the same thing. People are not dying to sell their houses right now. And so there's a small amount of inventory and a lot of people competing for it.
1: Yeah. So, so that's one thing that's interesting that you said that. Because I think being in the industry now, like we've definitely seen wholesale fees go up significantly, right? But is that just directly correlated to your cost of acquisition? Or is that more so d- driven by high buyer demand? Like, what's your opinion
2: on it? And I know there's probably no right answer, but just your opinion. Yeah, I think part of it is like probably eight to 12 months ago you needed to have a bigger discount off retail to to like inspire a, a typical real estate investor to go out after that deal but like there are always still deals on the MLS like I still know very successful real estate investors who buy you know 30 40 50 percent of their stuff off the MLS typically because they have some vision that that most people who look at that property lack that don't realize like oh you can build a coach house here and that's going to add this much ARV. so I think Now people want, uh, or there's fewer deals. Again, there's less on the MLS. So if you really want to be active, if you've got goals, like I'm going to buy 10 properties this year, five properties this year, you're going to have to be willing to pay a little bit more in order to get them at the same time. Like I think we're kind of now seeing a, a turn in that where I think those days are kind of numbered, or at least for the short term future, like we've definitely noticed that, like we're still selling, we're not changing how we price our deals and we're still selling most of our deals, you know, at or above asking, because I think we do we do provide good deals, but there's fewer people inquiring. And this is, this is echoed by all the realtors that we work with and talk with where they're saying, you know, this property might've got 25 offers in January and in April, it's only getting five. It's yes. still selling for the same price. So prices have been sticky, the realtors are telling us, they're not seeing a decline in the prices, but there's just fewer people competing for. And I think we're seeing the same for wholesale deals as well, which means dispositions becomes more important that you have, that you do that really well. And I think that that's something that newer wholesalers right now are maybe in for a bit of like a a shock where they might get something that seems like quite a good deal and then struggle to move it because one, they don't have the buyer's list, but even if they did have the buyer's list, there's just, people are kind of tightening up. It seems
1: Yeah, I think people are just getting, there's a lot of discussion, I think, in the real estate market where it's just like buyers are just getting tired, right? Like it's like how many times are you going to keep getting like outbid in the market? Eventually at some point, people just start to get tired and like lose faith in like all this stuff, right? But I also think the wholesaling market at a time when on the MLS, like things would go like 20, 30K or not 20, 30K, 20, 30 offers on the MLS, right? Wholesaling just provides you with an avenue of a smaller buyer pool. And it's even if it's at market value, you at least know you're going to get it at market value and not end up like wasting all this time and like outbidding everyone else. So
0: it's just and interesting to see. One, how oh, sorry, that? I just wanted to touch on that point that you just made, Mayu, is, is that on the MLS, things are selling above comms, right? Consistently. Yeah. And that was a huge issue a lot of buyers had is, is that this thing sold for 10K less, three days ago and now it's selling for 10 K more above all comps. Whereas wholesaling will always be based off of data and comps because that's how we derive our offer price. Right. And then we provide the list of comps. So it's never something that's quote unquote above market value. It's always based on comparable data. So that's like a key differentiator, especially in a hot market where comps don't mean anything on the MLS because it's consistently yeah. selling above. Right. But just thought I should mention that.
1: Yeah. the market's consistently going up as well. So, so I think we talked about, you know, what we saw in the hot market, but let's just say there is like a, like. I know we're talking also a little bit about like buyer buyer demand kind of like re- reducing as well. But if we're in some sort of like an economic downturn where real estate prices are actually going down from a realtor perspective, people still need to sell their house. They're still going to be earning their commission. What's the impact on the wholesaling business? If you're a wholesaler or if you're someone looking into the market, what's the impact on wholesalers in a downturn?
2: So I think it's tough to say, right? Cause I've never wholesaled in a down market. And I think most wholesalers haven't really, because, When's it like we had like 2017, you know, you had a minor blip there, very short-lived. But outside of that, pretty much every wholesaler I know has has basically been doing it exclusively in up markets. One, I think obviously if the market's declining, buyer interest, like that's gonna be tough, right? Like we're already seeing that now that just like prices have gone crazy where, and even though the majority of Canadians, like 60 plus percent, think that housing prices are gonna continue, I still think there's this like nervousness of like. If it doesn't continue, it might not just be 1% or 2% correction. It could be larger. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like if you're banking on, you know, you're using private money, you're using expensive money. Like if, if something drops during the time and you're expecting to burn it and pay back a private lender, like you're not going to be paying back your private lender, right? Not unless you have money in the bank, right? So I think one, a significant pool of buyers will be unable to buy simply because they could not they just can't absorb the loss if if that's what ends up happening. So I think that's a problem. But I think that the big thing would be like, is if people are renewing their mortgages at prices that are less than what they paid for the property. I think that's when you'll see like some drastic changes. I don't know what they'll be, but like if you've got a lot of people who who are not able to refinance because they owe more than the house is worth, that likely means a lot of houses are going to be available for sale. So I think there's always opportunity. And I think that wholesaling is something that, is kind of immune to cycles in the sense that like you can sell real estate in a market that's going up or going down right one of the challenges is that prices are stickier on the way down right and so even now like let's say that you know we've had this crazy everybody is aware like you're not getting calls from people now that aren't aware that the market's gone kind of crazy even if it starts declining in price people are not going to become aware of that for some time so I think the one side is like buying will be tough if that starts happening because everybody's been anchored to this crazy market and these prices and they're going to want to wait it out. So it will only be, again, it'll be small inventory and it'll only be those people who really need to sell for a compelling reason that that you're able to, to buy from.
1: Yeah, like I, I like to tell people this when I try to talk about off markets a little bit. I personally think the off market runs on a little bit of a lag, right? Like if I was to ask my parents, you know, what's your house worth? They're probably going to tell me something that sold like two to three months ago and they're going to be like, oh, it's based, it's worth that, And right? And so as investors, we're really playing in that lag where it's like, we know that the market value for this property has gone up, but like the seller doesn't really know or, or sometimes it's like distressed. But so in the downturn cycle, sometimes the MLS is a better better source for deals than like the off market, right? Just because that's where sellers, I guess, are a little bit more in tune. So so Will, I did, I did also want to ask you, because I know you also flip real estate. So how are you deciding which properties to flip versus which ones to wholesale? And is flipping something that you're going to be continuing to doing in this current market? Or what are your thoughts on that side?
2: Yeah, I think like flipping is something that it's higher risk than uh, wholesaling. And so it's something that I, I want to do because one, I just like, I get excited about the actual project itself and like making something beautiful. I'm not really like, I'm not really into the idea of just like, Oh, just like repaint the cabinets and like do these like basic little lipstick flips. It's not that I wouldn't do them. If they're the optimal strategy on a particular deal, it's just not something that excites me, but like, I'm really into architecture. I'm really into design. So the creative element of like putting a project together is a lot of fun. So I'll continue to do it, but I don't, I don't foresee myself being somebody who's doing like, three or four flips at a time routinely, you know, we've got, you know, friends who flip up to 10, 15, 20 properties at a time. I don't see myself doing that. I see myself doing it more as like probably one at a time, maybe two max and doing it because I actually enjoy it. And, and there are good profits to be had if you're, if you're buying, right. I think I'll probably mostly flip in, in small markets. I think that you do a lot of that as well. I just think lower purchase prices, mitigate the risk a little bit, like, if you're buying something for 250,000 and and you're hoping to put 50 in and, and sell it for, you know, 380 or something like that if the market dips 10%, like you might break even, you're probably not in too much trouble, but if you're buying something for 800,000 and you're doing a couple hundred thousand, i think things can get a little bit dicier and you just obviously the fewer flips you do, the more risk there is with any individual flip and the higher the value is, the more you can lose. So it's something maybe long-term I'd like to get into high-end flips, but for now kind of stick to these smaller ones, secondary markets, cheaper purchase prices.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's kind of like me. It's just about the risk tolerance, right? Like the last thing you want is to be stuck with like 10 flips going on and the market goes down and you're just kind of screwed (laughs) over there, right? So there is one more thing that I, I, I didn't touch on before, but I'm just curious from the wholesaling business, you know, you can disclose as many numbers as you want here, but uh, what do you think is a reasonable goal for like a one year wholesaling business? So this isn't like including your side hustle time when you were doing it kind of part-time, but now that you guys have it as a business, what's an attainable goal for most people out there and what are the margins that people should expect in a wholesaling business where like, if you're at like, like a, a 80% margin or 80% expense rate, like you're probably doing something wrong. And if you're at like a 10%, you're probably not investing enough. Like what is kind of that, that rough margin that you guys are expecting?
2: yeah so i think for us the numbers right now we're projecting around 60 percent profit i think like if you're a you know a solopreneur kind of just doing it as a job where it's like you're doing everything that number is going to be a lot smaller but you're also going to be limited in scale of what you can do and you're also going to be limited in the sense that like you're the one who has to solve every single challenge so you might be able to do like when i was doing it myself is probably 80 percent profit margin yeah right as people scale, the margins get smaller. And that's because you're not doing all the work anymore. You're paying other people. So I think, you know, when you look at, I listen to a lot of podcasts from the U S and these big wholesaling operations are doing, you know, 10 million a year and and stuff like that. You know, they're typically around 30 to 40% margin. Like if they can hit 40, they're doing really well. So I think it kind of depends on, on the scale that you're doing as you scale up, your margin will go down. I think for us, I think doing seven figures this year is definitely the goal, And it's something that we are going to do. I think part of one thing that can set us apart from some other newer wholesalers is the ability to close on stuff ourselves, wholesale it or flip it or burr it if we need to, to make sure one, that we're fulfilling our, our kind of moral responsibility to the seller that we told we would help two we're able to capitalize on more of the revenue opportunities than some people who maybe don't have the ability to close on a property that for whatever reason there's not enough interest in but we know is a great deal that we could flip on the mls very profitably
1: that's awesome thanks okay so i think this is a great episode where you shared a good chunk of wisdom on the wholesaling market the industry and your own numbers so at this point will and we usually like to ask our guests three questions and i'm also curious to see how your answers have changed now since the last time we did this. And the questions might've changed, but you know, where do you see yourself? Or let's talk about yourself and let's talk about the business five years from now. How does the business change? How does your own lifestyle change?
2: What are your goals and stuff like that? So I think within five years, I'd like to no longer work a corporate job. Like I love my job, I've worked for an amazing company, but in five years, I'd like to be pretty much self-directed in my time where I can work from anywhere. You know, me and my wife, maybe we have got small children by that point. Uh, where we're able to, if we want to go to Costa Rica for for a few months from January to March, I'd like to be able to do that sort of thing. So I think from a business perspective, that means we need to have employees that are capable of of doing the roles that we do now, uh, and maybe not exactly the same way or at the same level, but without much loss there so that we're able to kind of reclaim some of our life because work-life balance is is just very out of whack right now. And it's not something that's sustainable uh, over the long term. Cool.
0: Okay. The second question is, is uh, if you had, I think you already answered this, but well, let's try it again. If you had $10 million and you only had, I think it was a week, a week to spend it, how would you spend it? And you cannot spend it all on real estate.
2: Okay. So if it's, I mean, can't buy any investments with it. Cause that's just kind of a boring answer. I think it would be taking a bunch of friends and family on A really amazing trip, like whether it's to Asia or something like that, like, you know, scuba diving, doing all sorts of like nature stuff, staying at great resorts, just eating at the best restaurants, like really taking in the best that the world has to offer, I think is what I do. And obviously that stuff's just way better when you can bring a whole lot of people with you and share that experience.
1: Sure. And if you could do dinner
2: with any person dead or alive, who would you choose and why? So last time I think I chose Eddie Murphy, I would say maybe Lars from Metallica, I think he's a very good businessman, but more importantly, just like, you know, growing up, I was super into that music. I still am, but uh, I just think he's a really interesting guy. And I think just like the stories that, that rock stars from that era had, like it's it, just the world's changed and that type of rock star doesn't really exist anymore. So I think it'd be just really cool to, to hear those stories firsthand from someone of that status.
0: Awesome. Thank you Wayland, for joining us today and uh, I guess disclosing some of the secrets of our wholesaling business. And uh, it was a pleasure again to, to have you on and sure we're going to have you again a year from now and then a lot of shit's going to change for you. You're going to be like 10 levels above where you are today. So looking forward to that. If people want to follow you, reach out to you, interact with you, how can they do so?
2: Yeah. So I'm uh, Waylon Miguel McGill on basically every platform. So Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, you can reach me on all of those. You know, if you're looking to buy off market real estate, great deals, Ontario property deals, you can follow us on, on Instagram. And also, you know, if you are, if you do know someone that's, that's looking to sell a house or you're looking to sell a house, you want to do it privately. You can contact me or fast Ontario home buyer.
0: We're going to have all of those details in the show notes below again, Wayland, pleasure having you on as always, and everyone out there, make sure to like subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast helps bring great guests out like Waylon. And until next time, invest smarter and live better.